Hello and welcome to the very first Scottish Politics Podcast. My name is David Clegg and I'm the political editor of The Daily Record and your host. Every week I'll be joined by special guests to look past the headlines and get to the heart of what's happening in Scottish politics. And I'm delighted to say I'm joined by two brilliant guests for our debut podcast. First of all, we have former Scottish Labour leader Kezia Dugdale. Kez is a list MSP for Lovian and most importantly, a columnist for The Daily Record. Uh, you may also have heard that she spent some time in the Australian jungle last year. Uh, joining Kez is the SNP's Jenny Gilruff. Uh, Jenny was elected in 2016 as the MSP for Mid Fife and Glenrothes. Prior to entering politics though, she had a successful career as a teacher and is currently the parliamentary liaison officer to Education Secretary John Swinney. Later in the programme we'll be discussing whether Jeremy Corbyn is a secret independent supporter, uh, the latest on Brexit and whether Shona Robeson can hold on as health secretary. But before we start with any of that we've got to discuss the football because it's a daily record and we like to talk about the football much more than we like to talk about politics. Uh, for those who don't know, and I'm sure everyone listening is probably aware of this, but as, as well as being political rivals, Kez and uh, Jenny are a couple, and they were at the football, the Hibs game last night. Is it your first time, Jenny? Yep, uh, uh, an Edinburgh match, so yeah. And Kez is a big Hibs fan, and you're a real Hibs fan, you're not a pretend politician Hibs fan. A real Hibs fan, and of course last night was a crunch match, because this yeah. is all about what happens at the end of the season, what placing... Uh, Aberdeen Rangers and, and Hibs have and it was our chance to get three points and still be in contention for second place but uh, the reality of losing again at Tynecastle last night is that we're going to be fourth. Um, still got a chance of some European football next year depending on what happens in the cup final on Saturday Yes. but pretty grim night for Neil, Neil Lennon says he's thinking about jacking it all in no, I've not picked that up. Well, you, should, you haven't read the Daily Record today then? It's on the back page? So we, we, we had, the television was on in the background uh, after the match, but the sound was off and I just saw his face was sort of really angry and upset and I just assumed he was disappointed with the result, not that he was reconsidering all his plans. He said something about players, uh, something like Bambi on ice or something like that. Really? Yeah. My, um, are, you, are you back for more football, do you think, Jenny, or is that enough um, for you? I'm not so sure. So... <laughs> Uh, really, I was only supporting Hearts to troll Kez, uh, not essentially a Hearts fan, um, but it was fun to wind her up and also for Hearts to win, and the fact we were sitting in the Hearts end as well helped, so she had to get up and cheer um, when Hearts scored. How did you end up in the Hearts end? Because <laughs> we were guests of Edinburgh Airport at the football, and that's where uh, we were all sat, so I, I very politely got up and... I dragged her up. Slow hand clap, but James <laughs> promised me a date at East Fife sometime soon, that's going to be our next yeah, football match. That's right. Well, we should probably talk about some politics. Uh, <laughs> It's Thursday afternoon, just after two o'clock. We've uh, had First Minister's questions, and as we're speaking, uh, David Mundell is giving evidence about the Brexit situation. So we'll, we'll talk about some of that stuff. But let's just first of all look at some of the some of the stories that have been in the papers. First of all, this week, uh, the, the big story at the beginning of the week, or, or one of the stories that was in a lot of the papers at the beginning of the week, was about Jeremy Corbyn and comments that the SNP MP Mary Black made about thinking that he was an independent supporter. I actually think she was slightly misquoted in some of this because it was portrayed in some quarters that she had said that definitively that in a conversation she had with Jeremy Corbyn that he backed independence. I think that's not quite what she was saying. She was saying that she thinks he's sympathetic to the idea. Because um, obviously I think it's fair to say whenever you were leader of Scottish Labour there was, there was some discomfort about the 
unionist, how strong a unionist party Labour should be and whether Jeremy Corbyn was on board with that. Do you think that this kind of stuff, this speculation about Jeremy Corbyn's commitment to that is is damaging for, for Labour in Scotland? So I think the debate about the constitution is always difficult for the Labour Party because we exist first and foremost to talk about the distribution of wealth and power. It's not necessarily about nationality and nations and all that type of stuff. So it's it's always been uncomfortable territory for some people uh, in the Labour Party. But my experience of working with Jeremy Corbyn, and I work very closely with him over a period of two years, is that he's fiercely and staunchly uh, against independence. You know, he's a, an old left-wing socialist who believes in class before country. So um, I, I think he was wildly misquoted by Mary. I think you're probably right that she too was misquoted, but it kind of suits her agenda to let that fly for a wee bit. He has said some things in the past that perhaps weren't always helpful on independence. I remember during the general election campaign last year, whenever you were, were leader, he said something about a second referendum being fine, which wasn't your position at the time. Do, what, do, do you think there is a, that's that old Labour problem of sometimes the difference between the party in England and the party in Scotland being on the same page with these kind of issues as is an issue? I think um, there's definitely... Uh, a trend amongst non-Scottish Labour politicians and that they all share, which is they're all really scared of talking about Scotland and Scottish politics. They're scared of putting their foot through the bucket, so to speak, because they're just not uh, ingrained in it like like we are living, working it and breathing it here in Scotland. So they do get anxious and they use clumsy words and they don't necessarily um, understand that we've got a really healthy, free press in Scotland which is to be welcomed but it's a healthy free press that's going to score over every word and find apparent inconsistencies like this but my experience of Jeremy Corbyn is that he's very staunchly against independence. You must have been quite amused by all this Jenny. Oh I'm always amused when different people in the Labour Party pipe up with their various opinions on independence. Um, Yeah I mean this was obviously a private conversation that Jeremy Corbyn had with Mary Black so um, I do think, though, more broadly, what Corbyn had brought to the Labour Party um, was meant to be a degree of hope, there was meant to be change in the party, and, and what we've seen isn't really, it's a continuation of what came before it. And there is definitely a conflict between the, the uh, London establishment within the party and what I think goes on in Scotland. They just don't seem to understand the Scottish context, which is pretty ironic if you consider that the Labour Party often bash themselves as a kind of father of uh, devolution. Um, so they take a, an ownership over it, but they, yet they still don't seem to have that understanding. I think one of the reasons why it got such traction, that particular story, is because even if it's, you know, it's not the case that this conversation took place, there, it does seem to strike me as having a little bit of credibility just because of the fact Jeremy Corbyn didn't campaign at all, as far as I'm aware, in Scotland during the first referendum. He, st- he stayed out of that debate entirely then. And just as, as Jenny says, you know, his politics of hope, it, f- it feels to me like he's the kind of politician who might be sympathetic to independence if he, if he lived in Scotland. Do you, do you sense that as well, Jenny, or do you, or do you think that it's... No, I mean, not at all. I, I, I certainly... I, I'm going to say this as an SNP politician, but I'm... I guess and I have this argument often, as you might imagine, um, about Scotland's constitution and why, you know, people in my party believe in independence and why people in her party staunchly resist it. Um, this has been bound up at the moment in the Brexit debate, I think more broadly, and we're seeing um, the Conservative Party try to chip away at the foundation blocks of devolution, which is really damaging to the work that we do in here. So Clause 11, for example, is going to take some of our powers away, potentially for up to seven years. I mean, that's going to damage all of our working here, all of our jobs as MSPs is going to be impacted upon. 
I would have thought the Labour Party would have strongly come out against uh, any moves to, to pull those powers back. And it's kind of been a, a bit of a softer approach or they've just not really been anywhere when they've been trying to form a position on it. You've seen it in the House of Commons and now you're seeing it move into the House of Lords. Ironically, um, the unelected House of Lords, you know, being the bastion of progression here, trying to actually hold to account the UK government. It's ridiculous. Do you want to defend your party, Kiz? I, mean, I think it's really uh, in- interesting, you know, the criticism that's made of Jeremy Corbyn always sat on the sidelines during the independence referendum. Um, that all boils down to whether or not he was one of the Labour MPs who got on a train from the depths of England and arrived at, you know, outside Buchanan Galleries that famed day. Well, it wasn't a spectacular. It wasn't a spectacular success. No, it wasn't, and, and I actually knew it wasn't going to be at the time, and I wasn't there because I thought the whole kind of optics of it, for want of a less kind of political bubble speak, uh, were terrible. And um, Jeremy recognised, like um, many people did, that the referendum in Scotland was for Scots to be debated by Scots. So that doesn't mean that he didn't care about the result. He just knew that he had pretty limited contribution to the debate and I, and I respect that but my experience of him is that he's, he's very much um, uh, against independence. On the question of uh, you know Brexit and, and the party's position on that, that's a whole different yeah. ball game and well, maybe, I'm sure we'll, we'll get maybe, to we'll, that. We can, we can come on to that. I want to stay on the independence question just for the time being because the other thing on that that happened uh, this week is there was obviously this very big march in Glasgow uh, mm-hmm. on Saturday. Uh, where police estimates was 35,000 people marching for independence. I think the organisers said it was 90,000. I suppose the organisers normally overestimate these things and the police are normally yeah. quite conservative in their estimates, so it was probably somewhere, somewhere between those two figures. But whatever it was, it was a very, very significant number of people, given that there's, there was no real party organisation behind it. Um, I'm, just, I'm just wondering what you think that tells us about the independence debate at the minute, Jenny. So I, I think if you think back to 2014, we had a period in Scotland's political history whereby there were marches, there were demonstrations, there were public meetings almost every other week. And really between 2012 and 2014, people who were engaged in the campaign had an opportunity to express themselves. And that has gone, I suppose you could argue, uh, since the referendum result. So these marches are really important, I think, for people certainly uh, in my party and beyond that who support independence because it's an outing for them. It's it's an opportunity to, it's an outlet rather, it's an opportunity to go and show your support for the cause to to march with other like-minded people. uh, And I think to share, I suppose, that commonality in terms of your political beliefs that you might not get through a standard political hustings. So, for example, in the run-up to the 2016 campaign, we had political hustings which are pretty set in stone. The, the Yes campaign is broader than that, I think, and, and it's important that those kind of marches still take place. I know a lot of my friends were there, uh, travelled from all over the country. Um, I couldn't be there myself, but, you know, these, these events are important, I think, certainly for the Yes movement. As, a, as someone who uh, doesn't want to see an independent Scotland, Kez, did you see this march on Saturday and feel a bit nervous about what it means? or? No, not at all, but I say that with the sort of deepest amount of respect. I mean, people have a right to assemble and to march and protest or process in any way that they want to. The very next day, there was a May Day rally where trade unionists from across the country uh, united together to mark um, May Day celebrations. You know, the last time I took to the streets in Glasgow was to march against racism on the annual uh, anti-racism march in November. So... I think we should welcome people using their power and their voice to articulate um, their views. It just so happens that on Saturday that was a march for independence. But does it does it suggest that maybe a second referendum on independence is, is a more imminent issue than you'd perhaps thought? I think it's pretty hard to draw um, those types of conclusions from that march on Saturday. There is quite clearly a body of people, um, thousands, tens of thousands of people who would have another independence referendum tomorrow 
they're diehard yes voters, they're never going to change their, their view in that respect. They, you know, you know, hundreds of thousands of people voted yes in September 2014. There weren't hundreds of thousands of people on the street in Glasgow, if you want to make crass assumptions about it. I don't think you can measure the support for a second independence referendum based on how many flags there were on Buchanan Street. Yeah. It's much more complicated than that. Is there split views on how to proceed with this question, Jenny? Uh, obviously, I suspect that the majority of the people that were marching on Saturday want a, want a referendum pretty quickly. The, the deputy leadership contests, uh, which is going on at the minute in the SNP, seems to have been kind of um, obsessed with that question almost. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm not... I suppose, well, the First Minister has said we will have another referendum, when, uh, but only when we're ready. And if you look at our manifesto as well, you know, the, the Europe question kind of was part of that. Um, and 62% of people in Scotland voted to remain, and yet those views are, are being ignored. So there was our mandate to do something. And I think Brexit has a role to play here. But in terms of where we go next in the party, there are... I think there's a pretty solid body in the party that feels right now is not the right time for, for a second referendum, but we, we need to be ready for it. Um, I don't necessarily know when, if it's... When would you like to see it? I wouldn't like to comment, but I, I think typical politician, I do think we need to see movement. So if you look, since 2014, we've had pretty consistent support for independence in the intervening years. It's not really budged much um, either which way, so it's not gone away. But yet, if you reflect back to 2012, support for independence was in the 20%. So it's it dramatically increased during that two-year period. Um, and any other future referendum, you would hope we would have to build on the support we already got. But we'd, we'd need to move forward, I think, first. Who are you supporting for deputy leader, actually? I'm not going to say publicly who I'm supporting. You're not declaring? No. Have you, have you made up your mind? I haven't, actually, yet, no. You're still thinking yeah. about it? Just because Christopher McElhenney, who's a, a councillor, who's, who's, who's one of the candidates, he's... He's saying he'd like to see a referendum in 18 months. Do you think there's any chance of that case? I think um, it's obviously not my favoured choice. Uh, I think it's absolutely possible. There's there's definitely a scenario um, where things go really belly up on Europe, um, where the Tories um, have a complete tenure to Scotland and you could see at that point momentum growing. I think there's a slim chance. Um, I think that it's probably in the SNP's favour to have another referendum, if they can, before the next Scottish Parliament elections, because if they don't, they'll have to write something into their manifesto for the next Scottish Parliament elections about when the next one would be. And in so doing, they'll alienate a particular vote and, and, and garner another, and that's tricky territory for any party to be in. It, it strikes me that one thing about that, though, was that there's no strategic reason why Theresa May would possibly grant a, another referendum on that time scale, even if the Scottish government called for it. I mean, it used to, before, prior to last year, it was kind of received wisdom, I suppose, that if the Tories were to block an independence referendum, it would be very, very bad for them electorally in Scotland. That did not prove to be the case last year. Um, so I just, do you, do you, Jenny, do you think that the UK government will will allow a referendum if the if the parliamentary votes for it again? Really, I still don't think it would be in the UK government's interest to, to block that from happening. Um, and I suppose if you, you think about the stuff that's happening with regard to Brexit and the Clause 11 powers that are trying now to be clawed back, we have um, consensus in the Scottish Parliament um, amongst every party with the exception of the Conservatives that this goes against devolution. So I just don't see how that plays out for the Conservatives playing the long game here and thinking about their strategy. 
they're trying to out-unionist the Labour Party. They've been pretty successful in doing so and have moved into second place in Scottish politics. Um, but where do they go from here? They can't really just be a, a blocking, I suppose, party that they're essentially going to block progress to, to Scotland moving forward. I just, I, I can't foresee a situation whereby Theresa May would block it, but we're not there yet. And I think, as Kez says, the Brexit concerns and the Brexit process and what's going to happen next will have to take priority. Let's, let's talk a bit about Brexit because there's been quite significant developments on that this week as well. Um, the House of Lords vote on Tuesday night for EEA membership has obviously uh, been very significant. Um, we saw the Daily Mail in its England English edition at least uh, having another t- attack of the vapours over that this morning. Uh, Torkel Crichton, our Westminster editors, writing in the record today saying that the Labour MPs, uh, Ian Murray and Martin Whitfield, are both going to be uh, backing this when it comes to the Commons. Are you, as Kez, obviously you're, you're someone who's been very vocal in the past about supporting continued membership of the single market and the customs union. Are you a little cheered about the developments this week or, or what's your view on it? Yes, I am cheered. Uh, I'd like to be more cheered, uh, but it's certainly a good step forward. And can I just say from the outset, this has got nothing to do with Labour Party internal fighting or positioning or left fee right or whether you're for or against Corbyn. That is totally secondary to the fact that leaving the European Union is terrible news for working people and terrible news for the UK economy. And I'm still of the mindset that Brexit full stop can be stopped. I think the chances are slim, but it's still a possibility. How would you do it? So I think um, there's growing support for uh, what's referred to as a people's vote. We don't talk about a second referendum because that's not what it is. What I'm talking about is the UK government coming to a conclusion, coming to a deal, and then putting that deal to the public, saying, you voted for Brexit, is this what you meant when you did that? And you let the people either ratify or reject that result in a referendum. That, I think, is the way to to stop Brexit, so to speak. And I I think we need to do it because I've seen those secret UK government papers, as has Jenny, and it's devastating for Scotland's economy. It's devastating for key industries in Scotland. And we know that when businesses fail and the economy stalls, it's the poorest people that will pay the highest price. So what you saw in the Lords this week, and I was delighted to see that it was my old mentor, George Fowkes, um, a jambo no less uh, leading, <laughs> leading the charge uh, in the Lords um, to try and keep the doors open towards what we call a sort of Norway type model so the UK in this scenario would be out of the European Union but it would still um, have access to the single market in the same way that members of the European Union would do Obviously, critics of that approach say well the downside of that is you've got to abide by all the rules without any representation if you want the representation you've got to be in the EU and that's why we've got to stop Brexit. Jenny, it sounds to me like the SNP wouldn't really agree with, or just, sorry, disagree with much of what Kez said there. Would you, is that right? I think if you listen to the First Minister's response to Willie Rennie at First Minister's question today, I mean, uh, with regard to the, the issue of a second referendum, her, her answer was pretty kind of clear. She said, actually, it's not really the SNP who you need to convince on this. You need to convince one of the two biggest parties. Um, and I thought that um, Kes downplayed perhaps the splits in her own party over Europe when she said it's not about splits in the Labour Party. I've got to say as an SNP politician I completely disagree. It is about splits in the Labour Party and had there not been splits in the Labour Party we might not be this far mm. down the road thus far. Um, so, And if you reflect on the fact that it's now gone to the House of Lords, had the Labour Party, when they had the opportunity to vote against the withdrawal bill with the SNP taking it, Again, we might not be in this uh, situation. So, um, you're not, you're not in your head there, Kez. Yeah, I mean, 
I, I don't want to suggest that um, you know Labour Party splits in Europe are irrelevant. Of course, they are relevant. They are they are deeply relevant to this. I'm just saying that I'm not drawn to making the statements I am uh, making at the moment about Europe because I want to kick Jeremy Corbyn. I'm motivated. But you by must, the you're, fr- you're frustrated by his position on Brexit. I, I'm frustrated by the. the what Labour, is it? I'm frustrated by the Labour Party's response to um, Brexit. I was frustrated by their contribution to the Remain campaign. And what I think is really interesting from the SNP's perspective is Nicola Sturgeon is sort of right that it's not uh, her that you need to convince on the question of uh, a second EU referendum. But my goodness, the power of her lending her voice to it would make a big difference. And that's the same criticism I made of the SNP during the Remain campaign, because I felt the SNP and Nicola Sturgeon, when she was at the peak of her popularity, could have done more in England to convince people to stay within the EU. Now, that's not meant as a harsh criticism. I just think, like, if you believe in the European Union, you've got to stay in every community, in every corner of the land. And she's got a chance to do that now um, on the question of a second referendum. And in so doing, she'd be doing everybody a, a, a favour whilst the Labour Party is quite clearly in turmoil over Europe. Did you campaign as hard on the EU referendum as you did for independence, Jim? Absolutely. We were out every week, knocking doors, street stalls, all the rest of it. It was another election campaign. So, yeah, absolutely. And what do you think happens next then? Well, will the SNP fall behind this 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 move in the Commons, presumably they'll they'll vote for this EEA thing, I guess. Well, well we'll have to see when it gets to the floor of the Commons what happens. But uh, I think I want to go back to Kez's point about um my boss you uh, me. Nicola Sturgeon's <laughs> involvement in, in uh, securing um, a Remain vote. Well actually we did secure a Remain vote up here, sixty two percent of the population. Yeah. And the SNP were a huge force in terms of securing that vote. Because my party are such a well organised, I would argue, machine, we were out, we were campaigning and, and let's remember as well, we'd just come out of the twenty sixteen campaign. We were all knackered and we were right back out there into a, a European Union uh, referendum, which none of us wanted to fight. None of us voted to, to have to... How much know, did you spend on the campaign? Because, I mean, that's what's often thrown out, isn't it? I'm going to quote the statistics to me now, <laughs> Well, it is. it was reported by the Electoral Commission the SNP spent £90,000 on the Remain campaign, which is less than they would spend in your average Westminster by-election. So it's not all about money. So why do you think that was? Do you think that they were only paying lip service to support of the EU? Or No, I don't no, I don't say that, because I, there wasn't any conflict during that EU uh, referendum campaign. All five leading Scottish party leaders united with one voice to say uh, staying in the European Union is good for Scotland. My, my criticism is not of the SNP and what Nicola Sturgeon said or did in Scotland. She was a great voice for Europe. I would just like to have seen her do more of that in England, in communities She's across like the Glasgow country. She's like Glasgow MSP. I know, but she was very, very popular. She was at the peak of her political popularity at that time. Uh, and I think she would have been a very persuasive voice in communities like you know Newcastle and, and I don't know, um, Birmingham maybe, where people... There's something quite interesting in what you said there about all five leaders. You know, yeah, There was very yeah. little disagreement about it, certainly in this building. We're in the, the Records Scottish Parliament office at the moment. There was very little disagreement on the issue here. Uh, still... A massive number of Scots voted for Brexit, yeah, despite the fact there was no there was no uh, real political leadership of that movement here. The Daily Record actually had all five leaders sign a, a joint statement on the front page in the run yeah. up to that campaign. So, what does that tell us about the the Brexit vote in Scotland, which they must be the most uh, neglected million voters that the UK's seen in a long time? Surely that there's nobody speaking for them. Is that a, is that a, is that a fair comment? Do you think, Jenny? Because a lot of um, a lot of SNP supporters voted for Brexit, didn't they? I don't. I wouldn't agree with that a lot uh, comparison. But you know, I, I think I suppose in terms of the outlet for where these people's views can be represented, you're right. There is a limited outlet for that. Um, 
And, you know, you, you talked about the party leader signing up to a pledge, I believe, on the front page of your newspaper, somewhat like a vow, some could say. <laughs> I don't know. Let's not get into that. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I suppose you talk about being neglected. Well, actually, some of the rhetoric from the Leave campaign was pretty reflective in the right-wing press and media and has been over the last 10 years. So they might be neglected politically in the mainstream, but the discourse out there um, in the media was certainly helping to enable the creation of the Brexit vote, I would argue. And if you look at programmes like Question Time, for example, consistently featuring individuals like Nigel Farage, that definitely helped to create a narrative whereby it was suddenly okay to say certain things, which perhaps 10 years ago it wasn't. And that bound itself up into the, the Brexit vote and feelings of, I suppose, uh, racism and things that you know came out through that process. In Scotland as well? Yeah, I would say it happened in all parts of the UK and I don't think Scotland was immune from that. Kezia? I think sometimes we're a bit complacent about why certain Scots voted leave. We, we, we try and convince ourselves that it was just the fishermen and the farmers. Uh, and the reality was, I, I remember a very distinct conversation I had with a, a voter in, in the east end of Edinburgh in Restorig, about a mile away from where we're sat doing this podcast just now. A very angry man who'd been out of work um, living in a pretty run-down council estate that um, blamed immigrants yeah. and by that he largely meant Eastern European communities for his lack of a decent house, his lack of a job and how hard it was for him to see his GP. And I, I came away from that conversation, I guess, with a different perspective about why some Scots voted leave and I really resolved that part of the reason he was where he was is a failure of politicians to talk properly uh, and positively about immigration over a decade, if not longer than that. And I think we probably all um, bear a bit of responsibility for that. The SNP, of course, and Nicola Sturgeon in particular, talks very positively about immigration. Do you mm-hmm. do you quite admire that about her? Yeah, and I've said that openly uh, 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 several times before. I'd like to think that I have done um, the same. I just think um, other people, and I'm talking about my own party here because it's probably the only fair way to do it, could have been bolder in the past. You know, the thing that made me cringe, perhaps above all others, in the 2015 general election was the, you know, the immigration mug that came out of Ed Miliband's campaign. I don't believe for a second if that had gone past Ed Miliband's desk, he would have signed it off. But somebody somewhere thought that was a good idea. Uh, you know, and consistently, the Labour Party should be at the forefront of seeing um, immigration as a positive force and trying to dispel these myths and say, do you know what, it's not immigration that's the problem, it's austerity, and that's why we need to austerity, and here's how we do it. Does immigration come up on the doorstep a lot in Fife, Jenny? Um, I wouldn't actually say that it does. Um, I'm just trying to think about the work that I do in here. So I used to sit on the Health Committee until a couple of weeks ago, so Health Committee have conducted an inquiry into Brexit and the impact it's going to have on the workforce. It's, it's going to have huge ramifications for our health service, we know that already. Um, and one of the individuals who was giving evidence, um, a professor, has been in Scotland for the last 30 years and she spoke about going to a conference in London and this is in the wake of the Brexit uh, vote and a colleague saying to her, um, and are you now going to go home? Um, and, and, she was, and this woman has been in Scotland for the last 30 years and I'm sure she's not alone but I just thought there's something around about our messaging that goes out, not just from my party, from the Labour Party, from the Conservative Party, from every party in uh, Scotland in terms of where we go and, and making people understand that they're welcome as well uh, to stay in Scotland and to live here. And that if you've been in Scotland for the last 30 years, this is your home. Um, so yeah. there is something that all parties need to take responsibility for. And since the Brexit vote, I think it did create a bit of a political chasm and an opportunity for right-wing extremist views to get in there and actually to be almost kind of okayed. Um, 
when it's the responsibility of parties like my own to call out those kind of behaviours and to stand up for people who have you know, made their contribution here or who want to work here, who want to study here as well. Did we just agree on something? Not sure. No, <laughs> I don't think so. It sounded like it did. It was very dangerously yeah, close. Good, <laughs> Let, let's, let's focus a little bit more on the Scottish dimension of the, the Brexit issues. Um, story in the Herald this morning, that uh, the, the day in court is set for July 24. Um, do you think that, that there's time for the UK government and the Scottish government to agree on this Clause 11 issue or do you think it's, it's going to be a constitutional crisis? What, what do you think, Jenny? There's time, but it is running out. And um, I think what is happening now, if you listen to the rhetoric of Ruth Davidson, I think it was FMQ's last, last week, she went mm. it. So what the Tories are trying to now do is to position to suggest that my party are being quite unreasonable and that, you know, they've actually taken on board a lot of the suggestions and the, you know, concerns from the Scottish Government and they're working with the devolved administrations and what's being, uh, I suppose, helped in terms of where they're coming from is the the Welsh Government now coming out and saying, oh, we're going to agree to the, the deal as well. So the suggestion is now that the Scottish Government are being ridiculous and we should just play ball and get on with it. And I've heard that uh, argument uh, previously and certainly that's what was coming out from Ruth Davidson last week. So I think we have to remain, I suppose, strong on this as as a party but also as a parliament. This isn't just about the SNP, this is about the foundation of and the principles of devolution. These powers were always meant to be in Scotland since 1999, they have been here. Brexit is not an opportunity to, to claw those powers back and nor should it be used as an opportunity by the UK government to do that. And I think right-minded Conservatives should think again and go back to look at the legislation and to try to work with the Scottish government to uh, figure out a pathway forward. But it cannot be a pathway which allows them to claw back powers from Scotland for a period of up to seven years. Kezia, do you, you were nodding your head in agreement there. Do you agree again? I think I think I do, yeah. Uh, Probably not one hundred percent because that would catch me out. But um, <laughs> I think if I was to put a bet on it, um, we're heading to court. Uh, it just feels that way. I think if a deal was going to be done, it would have happened yeah. um, by now. I'm always really struck when the comparison with Wales comes up, um, because I, you know, I, I know Carwin Jones. Um, I had a good relationship with him when I was leader. We used to talk about stuff like this all the time. And Wales and Scotland are very different, and they're very different for a number of reasons. First and foremost, this is the whole point of devolution that we do things differently. So just because Wales has struck a deal doesn't mean that Scotland has to. Yeah. And separately, you know, when you look at the Welsh um, Assembly Act compared to the Scotland Act. The key geeky difference, and it is a geeky point, but I think it's important, is that uh, the Welsh Assembly's powers are conferred upon it, whereas the Scottish Parliament's powers Mm. are everything that's not uh, reserved is devolved. So this is why the power grab element is so different in Scotland. Do you think there's also an argument that just the fact Wales voted for Brexit has changed the calculation there for for Welsh Labour? I think it's a bit of it, but it was very, very close in Wales. I mean, I think it was something like 51-49, so I don't think you should overplay the the, the size of the vote. The other thing about Wales you have to remember is um, they don't have the same appetite for further devolution that Scotland does, so they're already a little bit uncomfortable with some of the new powers that they're getting. They still, for example, share the same justice system across uh, England and Wales. It's, It's a vastly different setup, but it's what the Welsh want. Again, that's the point of devolution. What is right for Wales is right for Wales, and what's right for Scotland is for us to determine here. Okay, let's talk is about. Are you arguing for more powers for Scotland? Yeah, I'm arguing for more, and this this is actually my great frustration. So right now, over this clause eleven stuff, we're talking about twenty four, I think, powers, and um, yeah. that could be grabbed back mm-hmm. to Westminster. 
if we are leaving the European Union, and I don't want to, it's actually a huge opportunity to devolve more powers from Brussels directly to the Scottish Parliament. Things like maternity leave, paternity leave, lots of employment rights. I would like us to be clamouring for those, not just settling for what we have already. I thought employment legislation was part of the Smith Commission and you guys voted it down. I wasn't on the Smith Commission. Uh, I'm on re- well, like, yeah, that's, that's a fair comment. Yeah. Um, but I'm, I've consistently argued for the devolution of employment law. I've consistently argued for the devolution of immigration powers. Get a little insight into the fights over the breakfast <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're, you're About the devolution <laughs> of employment law. God, everybody, everybody listen to this. It's like, uh, <laughs> I want to be in their house at tea time. Yeah. Um, let's talk about first minute's questions to finish. Uh, I would say, we'll start with Labour. Uh, I think... Richard Leonard, in my view, had been a bit shaky at First Minister's questions in, the, in, the, in his first few performances. I think he's got better in the last few weeks. As, as, as someone who's marketed him, having done the job previously, Kezia, what, what, what do you think of his performance today? Look, it's not, it's not easy gig doing FMQs. It takes a lot of work, a lot of thinking, a lot of research to put these things together. And I think um, Richard Leonard's had a stellar few weeks, actually. Um, the work that he's done bringing up very individual personal circumstances around the NHS has had a um, tremendous kind of play in the media and um, it's had a great hearing he's identified key problems and today was a really good issue as well the idea that for all the um, words we've heard from the first minister about the importance of early learning and childcare in her own back garden in Glasgow SNP Glasgow families are actually paying more for their childcare than they were 12 months ago. We should ago. say for those listening who haven't listened to FMQs yet that uh, Richard Leonard brought up the 57 what he called a 57% hike in childcare costs that are planned there which he said would affect 5,000 families. Did you think it was an uncomfortable exchange for Nicola Sturgeon, Jenny? No, I didn't. I, this issue's already been brought up by Joanne Lamont, I think, on two occasions in the Chamber. So it wasn't a new issue. Um, I, I just think Richard Leonard's time as leader since you were away um, has, has definitely, I suppose, it's definitely a different approach. But in the last couple of weeks, he's certainly used personal stories to affect... Um, and that takes the heat often out of a, an FMQ because you cannot argue with somebody's personal experience in the same way you can argue over a political point like Brexit, for example. Uh, and Ruth did it as well today, actually. So, I think... C- certainly last week he, he did the issue about yeah. Uh, yeah. mental health provision yeah. in Tayside, mm-hmm. which actually yesterday Shona Robeson, you know, she, she seemed to move some way on that. And they are getting an inquiry on that. He, 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 has, a, he, has, affected, he has affected change there through, through, the, through his yeah, FMQ you're, you're last absolutely week. right. And, and the debate we had yesterday as well, in the first half of your members' debate yesterday, your time for the Labour Party, was um, very, very consensual, I would say, across all the parties. And the tone as well was completely different. Mm. So you're, you're right, it was, um, I think it was a good debate that we had yesterday on mental health provision. I got the impression, Kezia, yesterday that there was a, there was a long debate on, on health in the Scottish Parliament on Wednesday afternoon. Shona Robeson had been facing calls to resign for, for weeks as health secretary and she'd seemed to be, you know, on the rack. I, I felt like her position was much more secure after yesterday's debate than it had been beforehand. Do you think that's right? I think there's definitely smart tactics um, applied by the SNP yesterday, which was to take the heat out of both debates. And the way that they did that was with very consensual amendments that everybody could vote for and to actually give the Labour Party a little bit of a product to show that they delivered at the end of it. In fairness, though, the Carsview situation to do with the uh, mental health services in, in Dundee, that's one of these rare stories that you get which is just simply unanswerable. That was a devastating story. Something's not right there. There's no politics in that. It just needs to be fixed. Um, I, I think Shona Robeson will survive 
Robison, I always say her name wrong and get her out from, from Jenny, Shona Robison will survive for as long as um, Nicola Sturgeon wants her to. So the minute Nicola um, wants to do a positive, refreshing reshuffle, then I think we'll see Shona quietly move. But I would be very surprised um, if she goes before then because it sounds like she survived some of the worst heat she's going to face. Do you, are you expecting a, a reshuffle soon in the Scottish Government, Jenny? I don't think so, no. I mean, I don't... I, I think as well, trying to personalise it to Shona really is not... doesn't do suit. That. No, but some of the attacks, though, I feel have been overtly personal towards her and I don't think it's fair. Being the Health Secretary is one of the most difficult jobs in government, I think. Certainly as a backbencher looking at, at the kind of things she has to deal with. I've got... You know, in Fife at the moment, we've got a situation without a virus closure. That's not a decision that's been made by the Scottish Government. That's a decision that's been made locally. And often these kind of things happen at a local level and they are, um, there's a lot of political heat around about it and if they're trying to look for somebody to pin the blame on. Shona Robson's got nothing to do with that decision in Fife. Um, it's not the government's responsibility either, I would argue, to sort it out. But, but we have this kind of tendency in Scottish politics, I think, to look for a scapegoat or, or look for an individual. And I actually think she's been pretty unfairly treated. So um, I, I certainly think the debate yesterday was a really good example of how the health service, I think, well, the health secretary is working really well across all parties to, to resolve some of the problems that we have. Um, Ruth Davidson today at First Minister's Question also went on a, a sensitive and, and yeah. a subject about uh, breast cancer treatment and drugs that are available. Now, this is this is a, a st- the type of story that we write in the Daily Record all the time because what these are... We acknowledge that these are very difficult decisions, uh, uh, what drugs are approved for treatment and uh, because they're very expensive. But again, I felt that Nicola Sturgeon dealt with it quite well today. Uh, it was, that, was, that was quite a grown-up exchange as well, I thought. What, what, what did you make of, of that one, case? Yeah, I think that's a fair analysis. So we're talking about um, a drug called Pergita, which is for secondary breast cancer. There are lots of drugs like this that we debate all the time and all the different cancer charities make the case for why they should be approved and why they should be used. It's exactly because of that reason that we have the medical consortium process where, where there's independent people yeah. a step removed yeah. from government to evaluate the cost of these drugs. You know, I've had um, uh, women at my uh, surgery um, about 18 months ago now who were in the advanced stages of breast cancer appealing to me um, to try and get a drug called Cadsila approved, another one which Breast Cancer now wanted to do. I think the Daily Record covered it uh, in the paper at the time. And you are dealing uh, literally with life and death situations here, which is why I think what we saw today was a very serious, considered conversation, completely absent of any party politics, which is what it needs to be. You, you agree with that, Jenny? Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, I think the, the medical consortium is independent of government, so it was a kind of a top round the houses almost because yeah. it, it sits apart from government. Um, I, I think the second point that the First Minister raised was that if the drug is to become available in Scotland, it should be done. It should be available in parity with the prices that are being charged elsewhere in the UK. Yeah. And there's maybe a question mark over whether or not I, that's the case. There, at the there, there's maybe an answer for this, but I always wonder why these things aren't group negotiated across the NHS yeah. at the UK level. But I'm sure I'm sure there is a reason for that. Anyway, I think we're, we're pretty much running out of time now, so I'd like to thank my two fantastic guests, Kezia Dugdale and Jenny Gilroof, for, for joining me for this debut edition of the Scottish Politics Podcast. Uh, we'll be back every week uh, discussing First Minister's questions and anything else that's exciting us here at Holyrood. Uh, if you want to follow us on Twitter, uh, I'm at, at Davy Clegg, and Kezia and Jenny are both prolific tweeters as well. <laughs> what, 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 what's your Twitter handle, Kez? We're mostly talking to each other. I'm at Kez Dugdale. And you can read Kezia in the Daily Record on a Tuesday. Uh, Thank you for listening and we'll be back next week. Cheers.